And chapter 5 starts with the word, therefore. There used to be an old comedian years ago. His name was Professor Irwin Corey. Probably nobody else remembers Professor Irwin Corey, but, you know, I go further back than most of you do, so I do remember Professor Irwin Corey. He was a, just a little guy, sort of like me in, in height, but had wild hair, dressed in this long black coat, with long tails, a tie that hung down almost to his waist, the knot. And he would always come out and he would go and look in his coat and start with, therefore, and people would just look at him, what are you talking about? What's before the therefore? Well, that's what Paul was doing. Therefore, but he was already in chapter 5. That means that before he came to therefore, he had said something important that we needed to be aware of. Because therefore reaches a conclusion or leads us to reach a conclusion. And it sort of infers, now that I have told you or informed you of these things, I will bring this subject to a conclusion. Therefore, Sometimes, therefore, means that because of what has been said, now something needs to be done. In the case of Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is referring to the examples of who God is or what he is like. Let's go back just a bit to the previous chapter, chapter 4, which Pastor Sean taught on uh, Wednesday night, and we go to verses 20 through 24 of chapter 4. And he says, but you have not so learned Christ. In other words, this isn't what Christ is like. This isn't what you have heard about Jesus Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So in other words, divest yourself of all of the ugliness of a conduct that was not becoming a Christian. Get rid of that. Clean yourself of that. Step away from all that separates you from the Lord. That's what he was saying in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. Now we come back to the beginning of chapter 5 when he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Well, what are dear children? Dear children are some child, perhaps youth, that you like dear children. I love them. I love the dear children. 
I want to be near the dear children. I want to help the dear children. I want to take care of dear children. It pleases me to be around dear children. And that's the way God looks at dear children. And it says for us to be dear children by imitating God. Be imitators of God. How are we to imitate God? By doing those things that are attributes of God that show He is in us and we are with Him. That's how we're going to show that we're imitators. We're going to do that which God represents and which He is putting in us. We stop lying, it says. We stop lying. We put off the old corrupt self and allow the spirit of our mind to be renewed. In this manner, we put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What a fantastic thought that it is that by letting God change us, we are made new. Can you imagine? You have been made new if indeed Christ lives in you now. You are made new. The old you is no longer present, is no longer viable. You are a new creation. Different, better, more productive, more loving and completely different than the old person full of deceitful lusts and define, that define who we were. Who we were. We're not like that anymore. We're new. We're different. Some people will recognize that, that you are different. Some people will see what is it about you, Mother? You, you don't seem to act the way you used to. You don't talk the way you used to. You don't act the way you used to. You don't go to the places that you used to. There's something different about you. And they sometimes are confused because they don't know if they like you or not, if they like the new you or not. But you know what? That's irrelevant. If you are being liked by God because of the change that you have accepted in you, that's all that we care about. That's all I care. That's who I want to please. You know, I love when Charlie says, I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Amen? God, that's what we want to do. That's where we want to be. That's who we want to be defined as. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. That's who dwells, that's who lives, that's who reigns in my heart. Jesus Christ. We're different than the old person. No longer deceitful, but completely different. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I don't believe there would be anyone unwilling to raise their hand showing a desire for such a change. If you have already gone through that change, praise God for that. If you haven't, I encourage you to seek God. You know, and 
When God was talking to Solomon that he was dedicating the temple, and he said, when I stop the rains or send the locusts or punish, punish you for whatever has been unrighteously done, if my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. That's all he asks. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will hear from heaven. If my people do this first, that's what we need to do to change from the old to the new, to complete that promise of God's. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He offered himself in our place for us that God may receive the sweet aroma of the sacrifice that he made. Remember in the Old Testament that God told them to burn the fat of the animal so that it would rise as a sweet aroma. No more. It would now be the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that would bring that sweet smell of the sacrifice for us. What a great promise that was and completed when he went to the cross. Paul goes on to tell us to walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. And notice this, that he did it as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Hey, God loves our offerings, okay? God loves them. When we offer for him, when we offer from our hearts, in all sincerity, and all truthfulness, with every good intent, when we offer to God, he loves it and he receives them. God loves our sacrifices. When we do these things, we are showing our submission to him, first of all, but more importantly, we are also showing our love for him. He loved us first. Remember? He loved us first. All those things that he did in the Old Testament, sending all the admonitions, all the warnings, all the prophets, all the people that he was sending to warn his people so that they didn't have to go through punishment, it's because of love. It's similar to a father, a mother, uh, telling the child, don't do this because it's gonna go bad for you. I'm warning you. And finally, the kid doesn't pay attention and punishment comes upon them. In love, it's administered. Not crazy, just hitting, throwing stuff, no, no, no. In love, the punishment is necessary. God disciplines those that he loves. If there were no discipline, we wouldn't learn. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be induced to do the things that we need to do 
We wouldn't have any incentive to do them. We would keep on doing whatever if there was no punishment involved, if there's no correction, no discipline. So God loves us, but he also has to discipline us at times. So he's saying, do the things that will show your love for God. It is very important to call attention once more that the apostle was writing these words of encouragement and admonition from a Roman prison. From a Roman prison. He's talking about love from a Roman prison. How were those Roman prisons compared to what we have today? How were they from what we've learned, from the historical records and whatnot that we have? How did they show those prisons were? I mean, suffering today is nothing compared to what those people went through in one of those prisons. They were dark, they were probably humid, dank, they probably had mold in them. There was no EPA to call to come and check it out and file a complaint. You don't have any complaints, you don't have any rights. You're in prison, pal, this isn't a rest home. It's a prison, that's where Paul was. He was in a Roman prison, and yet he's writing words of encouragement to those in the Ephesian church, and not just there, as we're going to see. Do you know anyone that has been in jail or prison here today, now? And if so, were there letters, letters of encouragement? Were they telling you, hey, Keep on doing, don't do what I did. Heck no. They're crying. I'm suffering here. Get me out of here. I am innocent. Ninety-nine point nine of the time they're not. Were they upbeat in nature as this epistle was? I had a, uh, a family member, a distant family member that was in prison at one time, five, five years, just for getting in an altercation, but he had a pocket knife and that made it a serious offense. Didn't cut anybody, didn't kill anyone, spent five years of his time. Boy, he found Christ really fast in prison. He found the Lord really fast. But when he came out, it started fading. That dedication, that submission, that thoughts, those wonderful words, they started fading, they started changing, and pretty soon it was all forgotten. It was all behind him now. And a lot of times, that's what we do. Lord, why is this happening to me? Why don't you listen to me? Why don't you hear my prayers? Well, where have you been up to now? Why are you calling on God if he wasn't a part of your life before you had this need? It's as if I were going up to a banker and say, hey, I, I owe everybody in town and I need to pay them off. I need you to help me. And he says, who are you? 
What, if, what have you got for collateral? What are you going to give me to hold on so I can give you some money so you can go and take care of your problem that you created? There's no relationship here with this bank, pal. Why are you coming to ask for all of this help, for all of this money? Well, God sometimes has to stand back and say, excuse me, who, who are you again? You remember Joshua, when they went up against Jericho? God gave them the plan. The plan was carried out. They destroyed Jericho. The walls came down, and they had a total victory. And then they went against this punky little town called Ai. And they sent scouts out to see what it was like, and they came back and said, you know what, it's a nothing town. We just destroyed this huge city of Jericho. We can take them. In fact, don't even send out the whole army. Just send out a few people. Well, they did. And those people in the city got angry, so angry, they opened the gate and came out running and just scared the heck out of the Israelites and killed a few of them. And then Joshua and the rest of them go and tear their clothing and throw sand up in the air on, the, on their hair and they're crying, why did you bring us out here, Lord, to die in the desert? And God says, what? Nobody talked to me about this. I didn't know, I didn't know about this endeavor of yours. I wasn't involved in it. Why are you blaming me now? I have a plan for that city but you didn't ask for it. Well, that's how we act with the Lord at times. We tell him, you know, correct this because this is a good idea, but you need to have your plan put on this, okay? It's my idea, but you fix it. That's not the way it works. If we don't seek God's plan, it's sure to fail. It's sure to fail. Paul's letter might just as easily have been written from a home or an office from the sound of it, but instead it was written from an ugly place which was a prison. You know, a friend of mine recently sent me an email which at its beginning asks the question, can you guess where this is? And then it goes into a whole series of pictures. Pictures that showed a beautiful library, cafeteria, clean, sparkling, brand new, park-like walkways, dormitories that would be the envy of any university or military installation, a state-of-the-arts gym, recreation rooms, and other beautiful amenities. And at the end of the article, the place is identified as a brand new federal prison. They've got better stuff than we do out here. But they're still incarcerated, aren't they? They're still a prisoner. Well, under the best of conditions, if Paul was just sitting there in the lap of luxury, it would be different. We could see why, well, yeah, hey, he's got a pretty good viewpoint uh, about abundance and whatnot or encouragement because he's doing okay. They're taking care of him like a special 
And they did it one time, okay? There was a time. He was shackled to, to the guards, and so the guards aren't going to be going into the darkest, dankest corner of the prison. So they were taking care of him. He was getting the best of it because he, was also, he also had a captive audience to whom he would teach, the guards. I bet they hated that. Here they were, a captive audience. They had shackles on, and they couldn't get away from him. So Paul was just talking it up. But at the time here, he was in a Roman prison, ugly. That is not the kind of place where Paul was. And yet, he was committed to doing God's work, and therefore, nothing was going to distract him from carrying out his duty to teach, to correct, and to encourage. But right after that, that he's talking about love, he goes for the jugular. Look at verse 3 through 5 of Ephesians 5. And let's read there. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Don't even let those words come near you, much less you repeat them. Don't even think about it. Let nothing of that kind be near you. Neither filthiness nor foolish talk nor coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather instead giving of thanks. For this you know that no now pay attention to this. No fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Who wants to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God? From what you've heard before, who wants to have that available when we're out of here and gone up there. Who wants to have that? I want to see your hands. Who really wants to go there? Now, if you're not familiar with what the kingdom of heaven might be like, then you want to find out. Because if you're going to make a decision about that, then you need to be aware of where it is you're going. And more importantly, where you would be going if you don't go there. That'll really scare you out of it and say, hey, maybe there is something to that. Maybe I do need to pay attention to this. Maybe I do need to ask God for guidance, for direction. Maybe I do need to check it out and see how I can change who I am so that I can qualify for that. You know, this reminds me of Galatians 5. 18 through 21, where Paul is telling that group of people basically the same thing. Let's read here in Galatians 5, that's the book just before Ephesians, 18 through 21. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, 
idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. There's more? <laughs> and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We just heard that up here in Ephesians. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Have you ever seen a Disney cartoon about the Tasmanian devil? The Tasmanian devil. It's a little whirlwind guy that goes around just, and he's always got this look on his face of, of anger and his hair is standing on end and he's terrible. That's the picture I get of a person that practices these things here. He's never happy. He can't be. All of this junk here is from the evil one. And that's why it says, Whoever practices these will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want more? Well, let's look at Colossians. That's the book after Ephesians. Colossians 3, 4 to 6. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, get it? Therefore, Put to death your members which are on the earth, which are fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's almost identical to what he's told the Galatians and he's telling the Ephesians. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. What changed us from these things that he's saying now, you once walked when you lived in them. You had these, you had these qualifications here. You had these traits. These things were showing in your life when you were walking with them. When we were in darkness, that's what it's saying. When we were walking in darkness, how can you walk in darkness? You're going around, you can't see anything. When you're in darkness, you're stumbling, you're taking little steps. You're not taking confident steps that you do when you're in the light. You're talking, you're walking with little steps, maybe Testing, testing the space in front of you so that you don't stumble on something or hit against a wall or whatever, but you are unstable and uncomfortable and scared and a lot of other negatives when you're in the darkness. And it says when you were living there, this is what you looked like. You had these, these conditions hanging on to you. This is who defined you when you were walking in darkness. Now back to Ephesians 5, 6 to 8, and we read this. For this you know that no, oh my goodness, 
fornicator, unclean person, nor a covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. This is the third time that we're hearing this from Paul to three churches. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We just read that up here in Colossians. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6, same thing. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't fall in line with those who are not inheriting the kingdom of God. Don't participate with those who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't even look with favor or turn a blind eye to those things being done by those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. For you were once darkness, it says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you have changed from what you were when you were walking in darkness, and people notice, and they notice that to some, they, they get uncomfortable around you. That's the light of God shining through you that convicts those who are still performing those darkness traits, those darkness things, those things that honor the devil, not God. If you're still walking in darkness, it's not too late to change to, into the new man because God has made a way for us to escape that. This chapter would keep us studying for weeks or longer. There is so much to consider that Paul was telling the Ephesians, but for the sake of time, we must capsulize the richness of this word and still get the message that was being given to the church in Ephesus. We have already seen what was shown to be unacceptable before God, but now we see what is acceptable in verse 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11 of Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, we just heard that, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Where did you get the fruit of the Spirit? When the Spirit of God came upon you. When you came from the darkness into the light. When you divested yourself of all of those traits of the enemy. The fruit of the Spirit is now within you to be displayed, to be shared, to be shown, to be put out there, showing you are a new person. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. 
You know, when I quoted a little while ago that if my people will humble themselves and pray, give up their all those ugliness, humble themselves, that is acceptable to the Lord so that he can now put that light in us, put that new light in us, wash us off of the darkness in which we walked, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. If someone comes at you and says, hey, come here, want to buy a watch? <laughs> a Rolex, double L? Want to buy a silver? Want to see what I got? They're deceiving. They're trying to deceive you. If they were that good, they wouldn't have them on a sleeve. He'd have them in a nice case in a store or someplace. We have to be aware. We have to be discerning. We have to be smart in how we, we carry out things and in, in what we're going to fall for. We're going to fall for Jesus because he loves us and we are going to love him because what he's promised us and given us and done for us is good. It says here that the fruits of the Spirit are in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So he says expose those things that are not of the light. Remember Galatians that we just went through a little while ago? Here's what Paul told them in chapter 5, 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is, see if you can see the difference between this and the characteristics of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, it says. All of these things here are what show the fruit of the Spirit. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I know this doesn't apply to anybody here, but if there is a glutton, if there is someone that just cannot get enough food into his body, and eventually something's gonna bust, well, that, you already know that that's not good for you. All of the medical studies have shown it's not good for you. And you continue to do it, and then one day you get sick, and the doctor says, hey, you got to stop eating all, all of this stuff. What's the matter with you? You're trying to kill yourself? He says, I love eating. Or you're going to have to exercise self-control. You're going to have to minimize the amount of cholesterol that you consume. We were, I was just talking to a, a Danny out there a little while ago about... Some, some of the foods that we eat, you know. He says, I told my daughter that when I die, they're going to find, if they do an autopsy, they're going to pull out a vein and it's going to be menudo. You know, menudo's going to come out of there instead of blood. 
And I said, yeah, well, that's not funny when you're laying there in bed and your, your body stopped moving because it was all full of cholesterol, isn't it? So he said, no, I know. I'm not doing that anymore. Okay, that's good because that's what's required, a change. We have to go from the old man to the new man. That's not to say you can't have menudo occasionally, but then you have to give your body about a week to recover so that next weekend when you come, you can have menudo again. Just do it on Saturdays, okay? But we have to change. It says self-control is one of the characteristics, one of the attributes that we need to show the Lord that we are submitted to him because he wants us to show self-control in everything that we do so that we do the things that edify and that benefit not only us, but that show our love for him and benefit those around us. We have to make a change. It's easy to see that this message was not an isolated case, an isolated need, but permeated many cultures because, as we can see, this pleases the flesh. All of these things that we read before please the flesh. And that's what humans are. We're flesh. That's why it requires a big change to stop pleasing the flesh and start exercising the goodness of God in us. But praise God that just as the flesh can keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God, the blood of Christ can change us to be allowed to enter heaven and spend eternity with the Savior. Amen? That's what the, the blood of Christ can do and has done for centuries now for us. That's what it does. It allows us to enter heaven one day when we are called. There's a song, there's a, a hymn that says, when the list, what is it? When the list is called out yonder, I'll be there. When the list is read out yonder, I'll be there to answer. Cuando allá se pase lista, Ahí estaré. When that list is read, I'm going to be there. Well, the book of Revelation tells us there's a book. There's a book where names are written down. All of those who have made the change, all of those who are honoring God, all of those who have divested themselves of, the, of, of all the traits of ugliness, of the devil, of the world, that don't benefit us, our names will be written on there. Jesus admonished his disciples saying, make sure your name is written in the book of life. That's what's important for you to do. You're worried about power, you're worried about how important you're going to be in heaven. If you're gonna sit on my right side or my left, that's nothing you need to worry about. You make sure your name is written in the book of life. Are we sure our names are written in the book of life? Have we done anything to secure that? 
Are we continuing to do it? Are we considering the things that will guarantee that we'll be there? Not because of us, not because we're so great, but because of God's love. He's pouring out his love on us as we allow it to fill us. He's doing everything that he can because he wants us to be able to be there. He wants our name to be on there. He's waiting anxiously for us to step forward and merit our name being in the book of life. What more can he do? He went to the cross. He died there. He shed his blood for us. What more do we want? Who else do we have to kill? It's up to us. It's our choice. That's the other thing. He's not even forcing us. He's asking us, come to me. I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door of the hearts and knock. If anyone will open that door, I will enter in and dwell with him. John 14, 23. If you love me and keep my commandments, my Father will love you too. And he and I will come and dwell with you. It's all over the Bible, folks, telling us God wants us to share the kingdom of heaven when we're finished on this earth. It's throughout the Bible. What more do we need to see or receive or hear or read or whatever in order to see what God has for us? I want to make a final reference to the book of Colossians in chapter 3, 8 through 11. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off these things. It's a repetition again, okay? But anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. That's a tough one, isn't it? Do not lie to one another. <laughs> you know, sometimes we try to minimize the effect that we know a lie will have. We try to say, it's a little white lie. What do you mean white? A little white lie that makes it good? That makes it permissible? That makes it acceptable? Or it's a fib. It's not a lie, it's a fib. Oh, I thought it was a lie. <laughs> no, it's only a fib. What's a fib? It's a lie. <laughs> no matter how we look at it, a lie is a lie. Little or huge, it's a lie. If you steal a dollar from a person or a thousand dollars, how does that person look at it? He stole from me. I don't care if it was only a dollar. He stole from me. That's the, way, that's the way the lie is. It says, don't lie to one another. 
since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So in other words, you can't lie anymore. You're not allowed to lie anymore. You're a new man in God. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. According to the image of God, you're a new man now. You don't do the old stuff. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Folks, what Paul is telling us is that we were nothing, and now because of Jesus Christ, look at what we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 11. Look who we are. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not not a people you were lumps we were lumps but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy who were we then? We were not, not people. He says, we weren't anything. Well, Jesus told his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And what's that other ugly reference about before my righteousness? You are as filthy rags us we were as filthy rags that's right that's what he says so you see God doesn't lie there is no lie there is no deception there's no ambiguity in the Word of God we were as filthy rags but now we are a chosen generation we are a royal priesthood a holy nation, his own special people. We are the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Amen? There is no other body like the body of Christ. So now do you know who we are? Do you know who we are? Are we sure we know who we are? If this wasn't enough, you know, I, what more do we want, right? We know who we are, so, because we need to move on. But I want to be sure that you know who we are. Because now, you see, we get into a, a little controversial subject here that Paul goes into. There, there are three main things that he's talking about in this chapter. One of them was, of course, starts off with love. The second one was all of those ugly characteristics and traits that are indicative of the darkness being present in those people that have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
So now we come to the apostle has given us much to think about in this first part of chapter 5, but now he really opens up a can of worms to some, doesn't he? I didn't see anyone come into the sanctuary today with tomatoes or other missiles, so I feel okay touching on this subject. And I'm going to touch on it not extensively because I don't know that I'm qualified to do that, but I know that God has made certain promises to us, and that's all we need to know. That's all I need to know. If you want more, okay, it's all in here. While I was working on this message, I mentioned to a couple of ladies that I would be teaching on this scripture. And I was told in no uncertain terms to be sure and refer to the subject in the proper context. Is or isn't the word of God clear the way it is given to us? Is it clear? All right. Is it, does it need to be embellished? Does it need to be washed down, diluted? Is it not precise, succinct, true, correct, etc., etc., etc.? Besides, I need to touch on it lightly because I'd like to know that I'll get dinner tonight. All right. So let's read what Paul says about the subject. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I just feel, feel that, ladies. <laughs> running up and down. The, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that's the key right there, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Needless to say, if wives don't look at this passage in the right context, either they may be a little resentful towards what is being said. But I repeat what I said earlier. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we know that this is, that in his mercy he will only ask us to do that which brings honor and glory to his holy name, not to us. Not to us, to his holy name. The word says to submit as unto the Lord, and that is the key to this whole submission issue. If we're looking to your husband as being as unto the Lord, then you will also be looking to your husband for wisdom and understanding, guidance, inspiration, and all those other wonderful attributes of God. That's not the case, though. Don't forget that the husband is also called to submit to Jesus. In fact, let's jump ahead a little to verse 25 and read what the husband is called to do. Ephesians 24, 27. Therefore, just as this church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. 
that he might, he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, I want us to pay special attention to something we might otherwise miss and that is the fact that wherever we see the word he in capital letters, it's referring to he to Christ. So now let's read that again, substituting the name of Jesus for the capitalized he. And it says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ, he, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself, Jesus, for her, that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he, Jesus, might present her to himself, Jesus, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we're talking about you're submitting to God. Based on this statement, wives are submitting to Jesus when they submit to their husband because no matter what the husband may look like to you, he is not the one that is fulfilling your spiritual needs, but Jesus Christ. You see, the husband has his own requirement to represent Jesus by doing for his wife what Jesus did for the church. He gave himself for it. Verses 28 through 30 show us the charge to the husband, and let's read that. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And the closing verses tell us this in Ephesians 31 through 33. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In some of the translations, it says, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave, which means you're going to hang on to your wife and vice versa for dear life. You're not going to let go. You've become one. You've become one. And as you become one and you submit to God, you both are submitting to the same entity, God. You get the difference? You get the, the impression that we're doing the right thing according to God? You see, folks, it's not about who is more important in the eyes of the Lord but rather who will commit their lives to the Lord as he wants us to do, period. He wants us to submit to him, and that's all, and that's it. It's not about, can I sit on your right hand, or do I have to sit on the left hand? It's, 
Can I be there with you? That's what's important. Am I going to be there, Lord? Are you going to call me to be up there with you? That's what's important. That's what we want to be sure of. Make sure your name is written in the book of life.